Today fam, I'm Jen Tatum. And I'm Kyla Musselman. And together we are the ladies of Tits and Teeth Podcast. Now produced by TNT Productions. Oh yeah, we upgraded. <laughs> this podcast is for every theatre lover out there. We've got the juicy details and behind the scenes magic that goes into theatre creation. It's fascinating. This season we are bringing you something extra special. We're collaborating with the Canadian Guild of Stage Directors and Choreographers to bring you a series of eight episodes centred around assistant and associate directors directors and choreographers from some of the industry's best. As always, our vibe is all-inclusive, educational, and inspirational. So if that vibe's with you, then buckle up, legends, and away we go. Hi, how are you, babes? I'm good, Jen. How are you? Very good. Here we are, final episode. Who to thunk? Who to thunk? What a big series. Big series, short series, big series. Okay, tell me about it. What was your favorite episode? Well, I can't. I, I'm saying it. It's, that's a loaded question, Jen. Loaded question. What a loaded question because there's so many takeaways from each episode. First off, education. Who gave it to us? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think we have different answers for this one. Like For me, Steve, Tracy, and Julie were so educational. Like, pen to paper, got it. And then I think, I don't know, like, there was some inspirational ones, and there's some, like, let's go to the moon and back ones. Everything (laughs) is possible. There's some balanced ones. Who did you find were the educational ones? Aside from everyone, obviously. Aside. Specifically. And also Steph. I'm going to add Steph into that one and be like, how do you produce your own work? Uh, she told you. Yeah. She's telling you, giving you the facts Pen in the episodes. Paper. Pen to paper. I found with Steph that hers blew my mind in that it was like, be a producer, go sit in another position, and mm-hmm. you're going to learn so much. So that even sits in the inspirational category to me. Oh. I know. Now we're blurring lines. Well, tell me about inspirational <laughs> episodes, as, including this one that we're about to listen to. Oh, my goodness. Including this one. A, yes. Debbie, inspirational and just um, opening my mind and uh, taking some blinders off. I will say Debbie, who you will hear soon. Katie German's episode, blinders off. Stafford's episode, exactly the same thing because he just, he's got this great way of reminding you that anything is possible. Completely. Like completely. completely. Yeah. I, I was so blown away by Stafford and he was just so forthcoming and genuine. It was just bloody wonderful. And then of course, throughout all of that, I was so grateful that for Katie German as well to um, remind us of balance because we love theater. We mm. love the arts and it can so quickly and easily get out of balance. Your life yeah. can become all about the work. And we did learn during the pandemic to make sure that there was that balance in there. Who are we without what we do? Mm-hmm. And um, But we're artists. And so it's it was just that work-life balance within all of these educational episodes was just um, was brilliant. It came at a, the perfect time, totally, I think, in the episode totally, series as well. <laughs> yeah. So much great. Yeah. So much great. So, so much, much great. I heard it. I heard it everywhere. <laughs> okay, great. So did you have a favorite takeaway from all of it? It's an overarching takeaway, but the entire series made me feel less alone and solidary that like, oh, everybody's feeling this drive and this thing and, and this go towards and we're emailing and, and self-producing and, and making new ideas and everything. And sometimes it 
We don't always talk about it. Or and... we expect the people above us to have all the answers, which oh. they do, but it's just also realizing that they're then dealing with their own things as well, which is interesting. You know, the grass is always greener or we're, we look up to other people, but my goodness, they're dealing with stuff as well. So at every uh, level, I love that takeaway, like compassion. Compassion, yeah. I think it was in Tracy's episode where she's like, I don't know everything. And people are like, I'm sure Tracy knows everything. She's got to know everything. Right? (laughs) No, not always. Yeah, that Tracy Fly had imposter syndrome, (laughs) I feel like was like mind-blowing to like the entirety of Canadian (laughs) theatre. But of course, we all freaking do. Jeez. No matter at what level. Wild. So you're not alone, friends. No. And what, Jen, what was your favorite takeaway? I mean, Stafford, to me, when he said, it's not a no, and oh, it's I don't K-N-O-W was just such a beautiful reminder to me that like, A, we don't have to have all the answers, but B, there's so many, we could lift up the veils of so many different doors and there's different things available to us all the time that perhaps we don't realize because we want to stay in a cookie cutter box that like society dictates, this is the route. And the point of this entire series and the entire episodes and all of that is to make sure that we're aware that there's other pathways, building different and viable pathways. So to me, that was just such an important reminder. Yeah. I like that in his episode, we can, we don't have to know all the answers up front. Like you said, you can kind of grow into it and, and expand and adapt as, as these, uh, new avenues come towards you which is very exciting you don't have to have everything set off the top no and then same for like Steph also said you know it's like be a producer be in a different position because then you have more empathy more understanding of what those Mm. positions need and that in itself makes you a better actor or what Mm -hmm. or director or choreographer or whatever it is that you're trying to achieve the more that we know (laughs) the more that we don't know (laughs) but the more the better we can become at our craft I think and that's kind of why we wanted to bring this to everybody's ears. Getting, uh, making sure that everybody has more information of how the industry works allows us to be more empathetic about situations that arise in the room. And you're like, oh, I, I understand this person has to take on a million different more things yeah. than what's like happening right in front of them right now. Like things like that. The important thing about all of this was obviously making sure that this got to every person's earbuds so that this knowledge becomes accessible to everyone that it is. Um, so I just think go back to it again and again and again. I'll say it in the outro as well. Make sure you're listening and then re-listening to these episodes because no matter where you are in your career, it's brilliant. And, um, and different things will hit you at different times. Amen. So, um, you know, thank you to all our listeners for for sharing this, for getting this out to the world as we try to build more viable pathways by creating conversations and, um, you know, just keep paying it forward throughout the industry. Um, Obviously, we're going to talk about assistants and associates. We want those to be paid positions Mm -hmm. within the the entire ecosystem. We do believe that they are integral. We believe that it is a good pathway to follow. Yeah, one of many. So we hope that it's a viable pathway for for if somebody's on that path right now. We hope that that's um, available to you in, in any that we do which was why it was so great to uh, team up with the Canadian Guild of Stage Directors and Choreographers anything else on assistants and associates not about assistants and associates particularly but about sparking conversation and we hope that this series 
sparks new conversations and thought bubbles. I love that when you said thought bubbles and so that we all talk about it a little bit more and have a broader understanding. And it gives a diving off point as well yeah. to create change. If you want the industry to change, it does start with us. So this conversation is perhaps a starting point for everyone to then jump off and continue with your creative journey and just understand your circle of influence can be expensive. Massive. As huge. we strive to shift <laughs> the landscape of Canadian theatre and theatre across the world trying to support every level of your journey, friends. Rock so, and roll. So thank you so much for joining us. Ah! Keep talking about these episodes. Like we said, listen back to them again and again. And then if it gives you a little bit of inspiration, go with it. Go with it. <laughs> you can do it. We believe in you. All right. <laughs> what are we doing? Sending it over? We're sending it over to Debbie Patterson for our final episode in the season. Take it away, Debbie. Hello everybody, welcome, welcome. We are here with Debbie Patterson today. Debbie is going to talk with us about working with artists with disabilities in theater. Debbie is a Winnipeg playwright, director, and actor. She trained at the National Theater School of Canada, is a founding member of Shakespeare in the Runes, served as theater ambassador for Winnipeg's cultural capital year, was the Carol Shields Writer-in-Residence in 2012 at the U of W and Playwright-in-Residence at Theatre Projects Manitoba in 2013-14. She served as Artistic Associate at Prairie Theatre Exchange from 2012 to 2018 and was a member of the PTE Playwrights Unit. Debbie is a proud advocate for disability justice through her work as founding and current artistic director of Sick and Twisted Theatre. And she at the moment is a cast member in Richard II and Grand Magic in the 2023 Stratford Festival season. Welcome, Debbie. Hey, everybody class. <laughs> Let's dive right in. Okay, Debbie at first sure. wanted to chat with us about some of her personal background as well as the background of disability in Canadian theater. Let's start with that, Debbie. Yeah, sure. Because I, I started as an actor, completely able-bodied, you know, and I my, my training at NTS and and the work I did at Shakespeare in the Ruins was all very physical. So I, you know, I had this understanding of what it meant to be an actor was to be in total control of your instrument. And once I, I got MS when I was um, just, just around when I turned 30, I guess, a little after, um, around 32, 33, I, I was diagnosed with MS. And it manifested uh, first as, as blindness in one eye, and that went away. But what kind of stuck around was a limp. And I just like a, a funny gait. And I just started limping a little bit. And I was like, that's it. Game over. You know, I can't I can't be a performer anymore. I can't do the things that you have to be able to do to be an actor. So how am I going to continue in this art form? You know, so I developed as a as a director and a playwright, thinking that I could still participate while remaining comfortably seated and kind of use all the stuff I'd already learned and, and developed and not just like throw it away and do a complete shift to a new career, but to, to incorporate what I'd already learned into another way of practicing theater. At the time, I didn't know any other disabled theater artists. I didn't see any, I didn't see it happening, you know, that the theater that I knew was very ableist and, and required physical perfection of its performance. And then that, that started to shift a little bit. I was directing shows and writing shows but I still missed that relationship with the audience. 
and that relationship on stage with my fellow, my, my scene partners, you know? And so I, I started trying to figure out how to work around it. So I wrote this play where I was in a wheelchair. I didn't need a wheelchair yet, but I just put my character in a wheelchair so that I wouldn't have to worry because my, with MS, it kind of comes and goes, right? And at that time, it was, it was quite dynamic. My, my ability was dynamic. So I wanted to just like cover all my bases, put my character in a wheelchair, wrote this circus show for my family and, and wanted to actually, when I was writing that show, I was thinking about how our bodies tell stories before we, before we even open our mouths, before we do anything. Just you, you put a body on stage and that body tells a story. And I looked at my family and I was like, what stories are we telling right now? You know, and so my husband was, uh, he's a stilt walker. And he's quite tall. And so so I was like, he should be in stilts and really tall. And I'll be like all earthbound and in a wheelchair. And then my my one kid was 17. At the time was still female identified. And so was on the brink of womanhood and, and becoming, you know, becoming something new. And my my younger kid, my son, was this amazing circus performer. He had all these like juggling skills and he could do the rollabola and he was tiny. And so it was like his body told a completely different story. So I had this vision for this circus family that we would, you know, perform this show. And it was successful, but it was still like, I felt like I was working around, working around the disability, not like exploiting it or using it or exploring what was, what was actually there that I wasn't aware of yet that I could discover through disability. I was just finding a way to, to mitigate it. And then I did this um, verbatim piece about a neighborhood in Winnipeg and how it's transformed. And I wrote it initially for other actors to perform because I still was like, I can't perform. I'm not versatile enough. So I conducted all these interviews with all these people who had lived or worked or currently lived and worked in this particular neighborhood in Winnipeg that had, that had been transforming in some way. And so I put this show on these four actors and they performed it, you know, as a reading one time. And, and it just, it didn't work for me because I had formed relationships with all these people I interviewed and I loved them. And I wanted to embody them for an audience. I wanted to honor their voices by embodying them myself. And I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't let go of that. You know, I had to do it. So, so I rewrote the show into a series of monologues and I performed it. I uh, would walk on stage. I was using a cane by this time. So I'd walk on stage in the dark with my cane, sit down, tuck the cane under my chair, do all these monologues, do the curtain call from my chair and then take my cane out and walk off the stage. And I don't know who I thought I was fooling, right? And then I wanted to develop the play further. I, I was like, this is good, but it's it's not where it needs to be yet, you know? So I, I decided to work with a dramaturge and I reached out to Iris Turcotte and she took all my material and and I had videos and, you know, grants and, and she looked at it all. And then she called me up and she said, what's wrong with you? And so I, I kind of had to come clean about having MS, which is a, a progressive, debilitating, incurable condition, right? And I was writing about this neighborhood that was that had gone from being this sort of uh, great place to raise your kids to, you know, crack houses and, and muggings and gang violence. And Iris was like, dummy, what's happening to your body is what's happening to this neighborhood. Why aren't you writing about what's happening to your body? You need to do this. And I had been urged to write about it by other people. And I was like, you know, nobody wants to see the play about me and my disease, you know, like, that's not that's not interesting. But Iris was like, gave me gave me this frame that that would make it useful, you know, that I could 
use my disability and it would it would be a useful thing in this artistic exploration. And so I was like, okay, Iris, I'm down, let's do this. And so then wrote this new play that was way better and actually explored what it means to, to be in this disabled body performing in a way that I had not ever done before. Oh, it, it coincided with this other thing that happened where I went to a show at Cirque du Soleil. We were watching the show and we were all like on the edge of our seats going, oh my God, is it, you know, is it safe? Are they going to, is someone going to fall, right? And after the show, we went to a restaurant and I was using two forearm crutches by this point. And so I went into the restaurant and started walking through the restaurant with these two forearm crutches. And everybody was suddenly on high alert, you know, tucking in their chairs, moving their bags out of the way. Like everybody's like, oh my God, is she going to fall? And I realized that they were looking at me the way I looked at Cirque du Soleil. And so I was like, wait a minute, I am Cirque du Soleil. Like I bring the danger. There's something compelling about watching me move through the room. My body is telling a story and that story is actually interesting. So why am I hiding, right? And, and so, so it just like, it transformed my practice. And at the same time, I was starting to meet other people with disabilities who were wanting to do theater, who were sort of exploring it, trying to find their way in. And there was this gathering that the National Arts Center organized of disabled theater artists. So I started developing like a vocabulary and an understanding and, and a, a, a way of looking at disability as a support for an artistic practice rather than as a barrier to an artistic practice or an obstacle to overcome. It became a, a, a fertile ground for exploration. So I want to talk a little bit about ableism. So we live in an ableist society. Uh, and I'm going to steal a little bit from this great uh, thinker and writer named Talila Lewis. This comes from an article in Truthout magazine. She says, in its simplest terms, ableism is the categorization and valuation or ranking of a body, mind, behavior, characteristic, or community as inferior or superior, unworthy or worthy, useless or useful, normative or deviant, etc. In the North American context, these valuations are, are in rankings are informed through the application of white supremacist, settler, colonial, cis, hetero, patriarchal, capitalist ideas about race, ethnicity, disability, gender, reproductivity, criminality, civility, intelligence, fitness, beauty, birth, or living place, etc. In other words, in North America, she says in the United States, but I think it's all North America, our identities and our purported values are both a function and byproduct of ableism. Ableism is untamed and too often unnamed force behind eugenics and white supremacy. So we live in an ableist society and ableism is, you know, as artists, we, these are the, these are the things we tackle, right? We're, we're here to change the world. And these are the things we need to change. And ableism is like right at the, at the heart of this. Talila goes on in this article to talk about how ableism is, is kind of the core ism from which all other prejudices flow. The idea that some are worthy and some are not. Within disability theory, there are two models. There's the medical model of disability and the social model of disability. The medical model sees disability as a problem in an individual's body that can be fixed or addressed or mitigated through medical intervention. The social model of disability recognizes that bodies come in, in a huge variety of abilities and shapes and sizes, and that as a society, we can adapt the built environment, we can change attitudes, and we can change systems uh, in order to accommodate 
all body minds in our in our society. So clearly the social model of disability is the road towards disability justice. So theater is ableist. It's so much better now than it used to be, but it's still it's still kind of shitty. The way we make theater is ableist. The hours are punishing, the expectation of working while sick, although that's changing, it still exists. Within our industry, our business, there are hierarchies and systems of scarcity that make us more willing to deny our vulnerabilities and pretend we're okay when we're not. And there has been a dearth of representation of diverse bodies on stage. Uh, that's changing now and it's, and it's super exciting to see. But like, like in, in the production of Richard II that I'm in, there's a chorus of dancers and these dancers are a very diverse group in terms of color, in terms of size, in terms of abilities. And that would not have happened even like even 10 years ago. That would have been shocking to see on stage, right? That's ableism. The ableism affects all of us. It tells us that if, that if we're not perfect, we don't, we are not worthy, right? That we, we are only worthy of love and attention if we are perfect. It also tells us that we're only worthy if we can produce, right? It's like ableism and capitalism are like this. We need to be contributing members of society by having a job that produces wealth for someone who already has more than enough. <laughs> so representations of disability in our media have, for the most part, until very recently, fallen into just two categories. And those are inspiration porn and the cautionary tale. So the inspiration porn story is the disabled person who does something that something that almost anybody could do, but because they're disabled, they're somehow extraordinary for doing it. It's the reason I get congratulated for going to the grocery store. <laughs> like, good for you. You're out shopping for yourself. Uh, that's inspiration porn, right? And then the cautionary tale is like the don't drink and drive ad, where there's a person in a wheelchair who drank and drove, and now their whole life is going to suck because they're in a wheelchair and that's trapped. And what I've discovered becoming disabled is that my life is neither heroic nor tragic. It just is a given circumstance. And we never, we rarely, rarely see disability as a given circumstance of a character on stage. And this is important because stories shape our beliefs and our beliefs guide our actions, right? So as storytellers, the stories we tell are important because they will shape the beliefs of the people who see it. And those beliefs will change their actions. The truth is we are all temporarily able-bodied. We don't like to think about it, but we are. All of us have our things and, and we will develop new things as we age. Disability is so dynamic. You know, as a marginalized group, we are the most welcoming because you're all, you're all going to have an opportunity to experience disability at some point in your life. It may be temporary. It may be progressive. It may be a slow burn or it may hit you like a, a truck, literally. Um, but at some point you will experience disability. And if you don't have an understanding of disability as simply a given circumstance, it's harder to live through that experience of disability without losing a sense of dignity, a sense of your own worth or your value as a human being, a sense of your status in society. And so the stories we tell about disability matter because all of us will experience it and all of us need tools to get through it. And these are the things we do as storytellers. There are fears around working with disabled artists on stage. Um, and some of those are around how, you know, just not knowing how to accommodate disability 
Um, and I can't tell you how to do that. Only the person you're working with can tell you. And we also are afraid of the freak show, of putting disabled bodies on the stage and being accused of exploitation of some form or tokenism, right? And we have to kind of get past that. It's okay to look at disabled bodies. It's okay. You can look, you know, you can look at my body now disabled just as much as you could look at it before I was disabled. When working with disabled artists, th there is no one size fits all. People always want like a checklist or a, you know, a, what are some principles I can, and all I can say is, is that clear communication and early communication, early planning are, are the keys to working with disabled artists. I can talk about a couple of projects I've worked on as a consultant or as a, as a disability dramaturge to support that. So one of the first ones I did was a production of Kill Me Now, a play by Brad Fraser. Sarah Garten Stanley was directing it at Manitoba Theatre Centre and then it transferred to the National Arts Centre. And in it, there's a character who's disabled. In the preface to the script that Brad Fraser wrote, he says that the character should not be played by a disabled or doesn't have to be played by a disabled actor. I beg to differ. I think it's way better when the actor is disabled. But this was the first production with an actual disabled actor in that role. And so I, I came in early on. The actor who's playing the role was not super experienced. Surprise, surprise, because no one ever hires disabled actors, right? So I wanted to make sure that he had some mentorship before rehearsal started so that he wouldn't feel like he sucked at the, you know, at the first read through. I wanted him to feel like he was he was on par with the other actors so that he could continue to explore and develop and, and not feel like he had to hide. The first thing I did was was work with him. I, I spent a couple of hours uh, every week for a, a few months prior to rehearsals to work with him on the, on the script. And he also had... Um, manual dexterity issues, so turning pages in the script. It's hard to carry a script when you're when you're disabled. In in a, a few of the shows I've done, I've gotten off book before before rehearsals start, just because I don't want that obstacle. So I wanted to help him get off book. Um the other thing I did was I consulted with with the designer about how the set worked. You know, so we we took measurements of his chair and made sure that the design accommodated his chair and the turning radius and all that was was in place. But also her first costume design showed him, you know, changing his complete costume twice in the first act and once in the second act. And I was like, it, it's just not going to happen. Like taking off your shoes is like a five minute pair, you know, when you're in a wheelchair, he's like, you can't just whip off your pants and whip on another pair of pants. Like it's not going to happen. So, so let's refine this costume design. There, and there are also, you know, things depending on if you're in a manual chair or a, or a power chair, like things that you don't want on the costume that'll interfere with the chair. And that just don't look as good, right? Uh, it drives me crazy. If you try to Google clothes designed for wheelchair users, all the clothes you find are like ugly, first of all. They're ugly and they're designed so that uh, an attendant can dress you more easily. So clothes that are designed for wheelchair users are not actually designed for the wheelchair user. They're designed for the care provider. It makes me crazy. So, okay, so that was Kill Me Now, working with the designer, working with the artist. I'm working on a project called uh, Cowboy Tempest, which is written by a, a team of three writers, one of whom, the lead writer, has um, an intellectual disability. He, uh, he has Downs. Uh, his name is Niall McNeil. And so I was brought in as a disability dramaturg to support and um, facilitate Niall's participation in writing sessions, although the three writers are really good at, at working at a, at a pace 
that works for Nile and centering Nile's, Nile's way of working within the group. But then once a director and actors are brought in and things are moving a little faster, just keeping a lid on things, you know, like just putting the brakes on every now and then to go, okay, we have to talk more slowly. We can't, you know, we have to plan more clearly so that Nile knows where we're at because he's the lead writer. He needs to know what's going on. He needs to be on top of all of this, right? And so, so that has been kind of my role within that process. And also identifying what conversations Niall needs to be part of and what conversations he needs to not be part of. Because anytime we're talking about the script conceptually, it is just confusing for him and, and frustrating. So, so sometimes we need to like work out conceptually what's going on with this character and this character and, and talking in abstract terms about the story or the characters needs to happen without Niall in the room so that we can come to Niall and say, we need to see a scene between these two characters where this happens. Let's write that scene. And then Niall is amazing and he takes the lead and runs with it, right? Um, so all the words in the script are his and we have to facilitate making that happen. So that's Cowboy Tempest. Oh, I'm working on a project called Access Me, which is about to open in Toronto. We've been working on it for seven years. And finally, it was COVID canceled in the fall of 2020. And we're finally putting it up. So it's a show with three uh, gay wheelchair users who talk about their, their, their lives as gay wheelchair users. And I was brought into that process after the first year of exploration because they discovered that having three wheelchair users on stage and everybody who's on the creative team who isn't performing had no experience of disability. And they needed that expertise on the other side of the table. It's like any other marginalized identity in the rehearsal hall. If you're the only in the room, you cannot advocate for your identity. You cannot advocate for your specific needs if you're busy performing, right? So just having another disabled voice in the room was necessary for that project. On that vein, then, when would you, as a disability consultant, like to be brought into the process? I mean, if there are other disabled people in the room, I'd like to be brought in, you know, when they're engaged so that I can be in dialogue with them about what they need. You know, we all do our best work when we feel safe, supported and seen, right? So let's find out what that that artist needs to feel that way in order to do their best work, right? The thing that... Um, works really well for me is framing access needs as a thing that everybody has and that we need to talk about really early on. I've started doing in check-ins talking about access needs. So as we, you know, we check in, we say our names, our pronouns, and our access needs so that we can make sure that everybody's access needs are being met. Can you describe a little bit about what an sure. access need is? Yeah. Sure. Like I, I use a wheelchair, right? So a wheelchair is an access need of mine. So I need when I'm when I'm working, I need a space that is wheelchair accessible. Now, if I didn't have a wheelchair, if I walked into a rehearsal room, you know, on the first day and, and we were gonna be around the table, I would need a chair. You know, I would need a chair placed at the table for me. So that's an access need that I would have as a biped that I don't have as a wheelchair user. So we all have access needs. Sometimes an access need is an ASL interpreter. So if I'm working with a deaf performer or a deaf artist or a deaf director, I need an ASL interpreter in order to communicate with that deaf performer, right? And the deaf performer needs the ASL interpreter to communicate with me. 
So that that ASL performer meets all of our access needs. What what I've learned from working with integrated companies, because that's something that I love to do and something we do with Sick and Twisted a lot, is we do sort of larger productions with integrated companies. So disabled and non-disabled artists working together um, and, and like lots of different disabilities in the room. And so everybody has different access needs. And once access needs are on the table, then people who thought I have no access needs suddenly realize, actually, I do. You know, like it, my, my kid uh, cut his lip on the way to, to daycare and I need to have my phone on in case my kid needs me at daycare. That's an access need, right? I need to leave rehearsal early in order to pick up my kid from daycare. I had insomnia last night and I'm going to need to nap when I'm not in the scene. So please let me know if I'm going to have a break of like, at least 20 minutes and I will go find a quiet place to nap. I'll let you know where I am. Please come find me. You know, that's an access need. We all have them. So often we're, we're kind of, we, we have this idea of professionalism that we will leave those access needs outside. You know, we will take care of them ourselves and just, we will be professionals. We will show up on time. We will do our work and we will leave. But honestly, we need to redefine professionalism because I think that you can't do your best work if you're overtired, if you're worried about your kid at daycare, if you're stressed about having to get to the daycare on time at the end of the day, you know, you can't do your best work if you don't have a water bottle with you. If you need to pee and if the break isn't for another 20 minutes, you can't, like it's wasted time, right? You can't do your best work. It's better to say, can we please take our break now? I need to pee, right? So in the interest of professionalism, we need to be able to embrace our vulnerabilities. We need to be able to state our needs in the room in order to do our best work. Our job is to tell the truth of the human condition, right? That's our job. How are we going to do that if we're denying our own conditions as human beings in the process of doing that work? We need to be able to express our needs and we need to, as leaders in the room, create a room where that is so welcome, you know, not just allowed, but embraced and honored and welcomed and recognized as an important part of what's going on. Because when we do that, then we find, we find the thing, you know, we, we, we discover new things. Alex Ballmer, she's a, a blind performer, and she talks about blindness as being in a state of limitless possibility. Disabilities disrupts the status quo. And once the normal way of doing things is no longer available to us, then every other possibility opens up. And as long as we have the normal way of doing things, we're going to do it that way. If you can just walk across the room, you will walk across the room. If you can't walk across the room, you'll, you'll find a way to scooch on your bum or roll across the floor or use a wheelchair or, or, you know, hold a chair and, and, and walk along behind it. Like there's so many ways of moving across the room that don't involve walking on two feet across the room that are maybe more interesting, you know, maybe have, have more opportunity. There's, there's an opportunity for discovery. By welcoming disability into your process, you open up your process to limitless possibility. Here's something. Okay, so I was cast in this show, Shakespeare's Will. It's a one-person show um, about Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife, written by Vern Thiessen. So I was cast in this show, and I had a meeting with the producer and the director and it was clear that I wasn't the first choice, that someone else had dropped out at the last minute and they needed to, to replace them, right? And that the vision for the show had kind of been designed around a biped artist, not a wheelchair user. And so, you know, I had this meeting and, and the producer was talking about, 
well, we need to find an Elizabethan gown and we'll need a stool and we'll need this, you know, these things that were in the, in the script. It was a, like a really low budget indie production, right? And I was like, we don't need a stool. I'm already sitting down. We don't need an Elizabethan gown because those stays are, are made for a standing up person, not a sitting down person. And the skirts are big and they get caught in my wheels. So we're not going to do that. So whatever concept you've been thinking of for this show, you have to rethink that. Like, I have a disability and this is an opportunity for a new vision. How many productions of Shakespeare's will have we seen with a rustic wooden stool and an Elizabethan gown? Like how many productions, how many more productions do we need to see? Maybe this will be a different kind of production because this is, you know, this is what I'm bringing to the room. And so the director and I just had this conversation and two days later, he called me with this concept of a sand table and using object puppets and this sand table, there's all this imagery of the sea. And so this idea of Anne Hathaway kind of on the beach at the sea, telling this story of her life using like rocks and bits of bark and driftwood to tell this story. And that's what we did. And it was super distinctive, completely unlike anything anyone had ever done. So evocative and beautiful. And and because I'm in this, this chair, like I could roll around behind this table in this really fluid, liquid motion, right? It just created this complete different possibility for how that show is staged by just working with the disability, not against it. When I played, I played Richard III at Shakespeare in the Ruins. And before that production, I had a lot of conversations with the director about the experience of being disabled. And so I'll, I'll just describe the opening of Richard III. Uh, Shakespeare in the Ruins is outdoors and it's promenade. So you can do things out there that you can't do in a theater. So we started the show with a stretch limousine. And I was in the limousine with a guy that plays my brother Edward and Clarence and some other people, Elizabeth, like all of us. And so it was just the wars just ended and Edward's just been crowned king. It's a new era. And so we arrive in this limousine with like loud uh, dance music playing. The audience was behind these velvet ropes and we pile, everyone piles out of the limousine and there's cocaine and there's and there's champagne and and it's a party and and they're all greeting going up to the ropes and shaking hands and like several minutes later i'm crawling out of the back of the limousine with my forearm crutches because it just takes me that long to get out of a vehicle and by the time i get out someone hands me a bottle of champagne and then i can't walk because i need my hands to walk and so i have to like wait for someone to take it away and then i can walk toward the audience and and then everybody else is gone like the party has moved on and I've been left behind. And then I'm alone with the audience and I get to do the opening monologue. So it was like, it was a great opening. And it was only because of this conversation I had with the director about how I get left behind at the party. You know, when we have those, those events where we all stand around and drink and talk, I can't participate because I have forearm crutches and I can't drink. I can't stand up for that long. Once I'm sitting down, the conversation is happening up here and I'm no longer part of the conversation, right? It just gave this director all these possibilities for what, how we were going to tell this story. And that, that opening came directly from our conversations around what the lived experience of disability is. Right. So the other thing about planning in advance is to recognize that this disability is going to bring with it limitless possibilities that you have no idea what they are. You cannot possibly imagine what they are because we live in a world with a dearth of information about the lived experience of disability because disabled people have been excluded from our storytelling mediums. And so the only representations of disability we have 
have been created by people without disabilities for people without disabilities, right? So you need to listen, you need to find them, talk to them and figure out what that is, what the what of it is for that. And every disability is different. So whoever it is you wanna work with, you need to talk to them about their specific experience of disability and bring that into your process. Can you tell us what your vision of theater looks like in the future? Yeah, I mean, it's moving in that direction already, right? That that more more diversity on stage, a, a, a world on stage that reflects the world we live in, um, not some idealized version of what the world is. And because the stories we've been told have been so limited, we we are having to fight all those internalized ideas of of racism, sexism, and ableism, and heteronormativity and cisism that 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 have permeated our storytelling for the last few hundred years. And we're changing that. Like it's it's a really exciting time right now, I think, because that, that's changing and it's it's changing hard and it's changing fast. And uh, we want to be part of that change, right? Yes, we do. Final thoughts, especially as uh, our participants here will be assistants and associates. It's so interesting. I was just having this conversation in the green room the other day with this with this actor who's like talking about how when you're an actor, you you need to please, you need to be easy to work with, you need, you know, all these things that you're told you want to be, but you also have to advocate for the truth of your lived experience and the truth of who you are. And she was talking about how do I do that? How do I, you know, walk that fine line? And so as people who are the ones with power in the room, we need to be the ones making that, like opening that up, letting people know that it's okay to be difficult. You know, I want you to make trouble for me. I want you to cause problems so that I have to solve. Like when you solve a problem, that's when your artistic muscle, your imaginative muscle kicks in, right? So you want to be presented with challenges. You want to be presented with problems that need to be solved. And we can solve them together. But creating a room where that is not only welcome, but embraced value, you know, where where that is expected is really, really important. Thank you so much, Debbie, for being with us today and talking uh, with us. We really appreciate your time and your energy. Thank you so much. That was the incredible Debbie Patterson, everyone. This series is a reminder that you matter and you belong. Thank you so much, Debbie, for your incredible insights. Give this series multiple listens, friends. Go back to it at different points in your career. There's so much wisdom and so much knowledge to take from each industry leader. We are so unbelievably grateful and that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Canada Council for the Arts, for helping us guide today and tomorrow's leaders with this incredible series. Thank you, CGDC, the Canadian Guild of Stage Directors and choreographers for creating this series, for creating this course and giving more paid work opportunities in this industry. That's at official CGDC on Insta. And from us, that's a wrap. So thank you listeners. And thank you to this incredible theater community across the world for being the most incredible and supportive community in the world. Keep growing, keep learning, keep having those conversations. You know where to find us. We're on Insta at Tits and Teeth Podcast and our website is Tits and teethpodcast.com no matter what you're facing today legends we've got you you've got us and hopefully you've got each other have a great day bye